0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 254, Aaron Schellenberger, From Trinitarian to Unitarian, Part 1. Mr. Aaron Schellenberger was born and raised in the Philippines, but he served for 20 years in the U.S. Navy. In the Philippines, he grew up in an evangelical church, although like many Filipinos, he had some interactions with non-Trinitarian Christian groups. In 2015, he earned a graduate degree in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary. He studied under big names in the evangelical world, including Geisler, Lycona, Howe, Turek, and Rhodes. But as he explains in this episode, sometime in 2016, his theology went from Trinitarian to Unitarian. Mr. Schellenberger, welcome to the Trinities podcast. Thank you, Dale, for the opportunity to share my testimony. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your background and about your Christian experience? Well, I'm originally from
1: the Philippines. I was born and raised there. At 19, I came to the U.S., and at 20, I joined the Navy. And then 20 years later, I retired from the Navy and started working for the government. And as far as my Christian experience, I became a Christian when I was 13
0: by accepting Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. So were you born again in, I assume, an evangelical church, or what kind of... um church were you involved with in the philippines yeah the church that i was born and raised
1: it was actually an evangelical christian church specifically it was a missionary baptist my mom brought me to church on a regular basis and i kept hearing the preacher preaching salvation and jesus and you become saved by accepting jesus as your personal lord and savior and then later on i was taught that uh Accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior means accepting Him as the second person of the Trinity.
0: So were you a very active uh, kid in youth group? And did you start to become more serious about your faith when you were 15 or 16? Yes, I was very
1: active. We had a very good youth fellowship. We had Bible studies. I was involved with uh, singing the
0: choir I was also heavily involved with mission work to preach the gospel. I think a lot of our listeners aren't going to know very much about the Philippines. Tell us what the religious landscape is like there. Most Filipinos are
1: Roman Catholics. The rest of the Philippine population consists of Protestants in general. Uh, We have Protestants, mainly
0: the Iglesia Ni Cristo and the Evangelical Christians. And was your church, was it English language, or was it mostly Filipino people, or was it international mix? What sort of church was it?
1: They're all uh, Filipinos. They're all from the place called Angela City. Mm-hmm. We spoke Pampango, and the preaching and the teaching was in Pampango. At times, the preaching and teaching were in Tagalog, which is the Philippine national language
0: what did your family consist of? Did you have brothers and sisters? Was your father also part of that church? Well, my mom
1: is the one who brought us regularly to church, and my dad was not a believer. Mm. I have five siblings, and we all went
0: to church. We all became Christians. That's a nice big family. Are most of your family still in the Philippines then? No. We're all here in the U.S.
1: now. We came to the U.S. in 1987, and a year after that, I joined the Navy myself and Mm -hmm. spent 20 years in the Navy. Was
0: that possible because was your father an American? My
1: father's parents filed a petition to the U.S. government to bring us all here to the U.S. My grandpa, through my dad, uh, was in the U.S. Air Force, and they filed a petition for us to come to the U.S. We waited for 11 years Wow, to come to the U.S.
0: That's a lot of red tape. Yeah. <laughs> so when did you first become aware of these theological issues that this podcast focuses on, the Trinity, the Incarnation? When I was about 15 years old, I
1: started getting involved with defending the belief that Jesus is God, or fully divine, or... He's the Almighty God, Mm -hmm. in addition to God the Father. That happened when my Jehovah's Witness relatives challenged my belief in the Trinity in general, and in particular, the deity of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit. Do they have a very big presence
0: in the Philippines?
1: The Jehovah's Witnesses are big, although the Iglesia Ni Cristo are bigger,
0: much bigger. Mm Mm-hmm. And so did you just take them to be kind of just denying the obvious? Like, can't you read John 1?
1: Yeah, I I took them as denying what's really obvious. You know, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How could you not see that? But when I started talking to my JW relatives, got into details of what that really means and what other parts of the Bible that point to Jesus being called God or point to Jesus being the almighty God,
0: that really made me question my faith in the Trinity. You assumed it was obvious and you said, hey, look, read this, this, and this, and then they weren't terribly impressed with, with those points. And then that kind of made you think like, oh, why are they not succumbing to my almighty proofs? Did that shake you up a little bit?
1: Yeah. Uh, I just wonder these people are good people. Mm -hmm. I found them to be reasonable and loving and kind and understanding. But yet, somehow, they're not getting my message. And so I started regarding them as nothing but blind, sincere people. And I have the truth, they don't. You know, it's up to the Holy Spirit to lead them to Christ. They're just being stubborn. They refuse to believe what they cannot understand we would spend hours and hours arguing back and forth. Me saying that John 1, 1 says clearly, Jesus is God Almighty. Jesus is God, plain and simple. Mm-hmm.
0: So what did these conversations lead to? I mean, did, did in the end, you just kind of dismiss them as deceived cultists and, you know, I can't do anything for them? Yeah. When I was new in the faith, One of the
1: big things that they tell you and they keep reminding you is that anybody that rejects the deity of Jesus or the Trinity is a cultist. There's something wrong with him and the devil has deceived him in so many ways and he can't think for himself and the only way that that person can be freed from that deception is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And
0: all you can do is pray for that person. Yeah. I used to take that attitude myself when I was a young Christian, you know, teenager and in my twenties studying apologetics. And I feel a little guilty about it now. Like I, I think I, um, kind of dehumanized people. They're just cultists. Don't listen to them. You don't, you don't need to take them seriously. Not that their arguments were always that great, but I think that was a little bit of an easy shortcut that I, that I used a lot. But anyway, back to your story you're slightly worried now because you're not able to persuade jehovah's witness relatives what happens next in your thinking about all this in my heart of hearts i was saying to myself well
1: i could be wrong about this Mm -hmm. but on the outside i kept telling people that this is the truth you have to believe this in order to be saved but at the same time i was beginning to doubt the trinity i was beginning to doubt the deity of jesus because of the specific arguments my J.W. relatives were giving to me. So, I began to search for answers through lots of prayers and personal Bible studies. Not to mention, I regularly attend Bible studies and constantly ask my church leaders for answers. Mm -hmm. That experience solidified my faith in the Trinity. Did they point you to apologetic sources? Yeah, my church my denomination had apologetics books, not so much of one book specifically about the deity of Jesus, but just, you know, systematic theology books or any book that talks about the Christian doctrines in general. At times I would get, uh, apologetics books specifically defending the deity of Jesus mm-hmm. from Christian bookstores in the Philippines. And, uh, I bought many of those, and they're really thin, and they're not really expensive to buy, and I've accumulated a lot of those books, and also I've been able to acquire a number of different Bible translations, so I can understand better the other side, and also
0: buttress my <laughs> argument for the Trinity. Mm-hmm. It sounds like your experience is like mine. I grew up in evangelical churches in Dallas, Texas, and I started to be aware that there were groups that did not believe in the Trinity and the Incarnation. But as far as my church experience, I mean, the Trinity kind of barely came up, whereas the deity of Christ was something that was much more insisted on. Yeah, the deity of Jesus is the
1: main thing that comes to mind At least when I was growing up, when I was a new Christian trying to defend the Trinity, you hardly ever hear any debates or discussions on the deity of the Holy Spirit. There are discussions on that, but mainly it's the deity of Jesus. Mm -hmm. There is that stronghold on the minds of the Trinitarians that if you don't believe the deity of Jesus, you're not going to be saved,
0: you go into hell. That's a traditional Catholic and Protestant view. I found, though, that today some evangelicals in America will quickly back off of that and they'll say, well, you don't have to believe it, but you can't sort of be an informed person and deny it and be saved. Right. That makes way for the uninformed, you know, eight-year-old who can say a sinner's prayer and uh, they don't have to believe the Trinity. But anyway, once you're 15 and you know better... Yeah. If you deny it, uh, they won't always say you're definitely going to hell. But anyway, that's a very dangerous position to be in.
1: It depends on who is talking and who is arguing for the deity of Jesus or the Trinity. Some people would come out and say, hey, this is plain and simple. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, because the Bible says, if you don't believe that I am he, you shall perish. Mm hmm. And for some Trinitarians, that's plain and simple. Of course, they interpret that verse to mean, if you don't believe that I am God
0: or I am Yahweh, Mm -hmm. you won't be saved. You will perish. Mm -hmm. Did fear keep your mind closed that this could be wrong? There
1: is a fear factor, and there is also the cult factor. Those two went hand in hand for me. In terms of the fear factor, it's just that what if Jesus is really the Almighty and I reject him, then I'm going to be damned forever. And the Trinitarians always bring this up. You are in danger when you begin to question the deity of Jesus. So that brought a lot of fear in me. And for that reason, I I didn't even want to entertain the possibility that Jesus might not be what the Trinitarians claim him to be. The other thing is the cult factor, I call. Meaning, only cults believe Jesus is not God. Only cults reject the full deity of Jesus. And if you're a cult member, you're deceived, your mind is clouded with uh, false beliefs. And so those two things, fear factor and what I call cult factor, had actually weighed heavily on me for a long time to even entertain the possibility that the Trinitarian view of
0: God might be unbiblical and hence false. When the Trinity's podcast returns, we ask the question, why so many, quote, cults are non-Trinitarian? looking into these things, I remember one of the books I had was Walter Martin's, I think it was called The Kingdom of the Cults. And he would always hammer this point that, hey, this is something these cults are all out there denying. And uh, he would have charts and so on that would show different groups denying the Trinity and the deity of Christ. And I guess at the time I assumed that, you know, the Trinity and the deity of Christ, they're just really super important parts of God's revelation to humankind. And it must be that the devil just, you know, wants to take down these pillars of truth. You know, are the first things that have got to go if he's going to corrupt a group. I don't think this anymore. <laughs> Maybe we should define what we mean by cults. Let's do that. and answer this for me. Do you think it's true that in general, cults deny the Trinity and the deity of Christ? And if so, why do you think that is?
1: Well, when I was a Trinitarian, I had a very narrow definition of what a cult is. A cult is a group that believe certain things about God and about salvation. And these beliefs do not align with the historic Christian faith. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity. In my understanding back when I was a Trinitarian, the Trinity goes way back to the New Testament writings. Mm -hmm. The disciples of Jesus, the writers of the gospel, Paul the Apostle, and other writers in the New Testament, they all believe in the Trinity. They believe that Jesus is God Almighty. In addition to God the Father that's that was my understanding, and so if you reject that, you are automatically branded
0: as a cult. One thing I think that people don't realize is this whole rhetoric about cults. It's a new thing I mean it comes from maybe the late sixties and the, and the through the seventies, and part of the mean of cult is just like you said, you know they're deniers of obvious essential Christian doctrines. But there's another aspect to this concept of a cult, and it has to do with, I would say, unhealthy control. Like, they run your life, they tell you to avoid your family. There's just this ungodly, invasive control that's involved in a cult, right? Those ideas are mixed up, too. You know, there there was even a fear that they're going to brainwash you. They're they're somehow going to take over your mind, you know, almost turn you into a robot where you have to be forcibly rescued from the situation. There's that kind of mix, too, in the whole rhetoric of calling groups cults, wouldn't you say? Yes. Uh, For
1: example, the Iglesia de Cristo. Many Roman Catholics and Protestants regard the Iglesia de Cristo as a cult because of the brainwashing method and the mind control manipulation they use to keep their members within their group,
0: what does that mean? I mean, do they lock them in a room and you know make make them listen to a tape recording on loop for twenty hours? I mean, what's this brainwashing stuff? In in fact, like, what are they really talking about there? So when we say brainwashing,
1: we're talking about putting a fear in people's hearts, people's minds that if you don't become and stay in the Church of Christ, which is the Iglesia of Cristo you are not gonna be saved. You're going to hell. You're gonna be damned forever in hell. And so they indoctrinate you by putting that fear in you. There's also a mind control manipulation involved in that if you stop doing what a Iglesia Ni Cristo member is supposed to be doing, then you are displeasing God. You're going outside God's will. For example, giving money to the church. Mm-hmm. or regularly attending Sunday church service, or inviting other people to hear the gospel from the Iglesia Necroso ministers. If you don't do any of that, or if you lack in doing any of that, you are not living the way God wants you to live. And your relationship with God is questionable. And if you're not careful, you might not be, even be
0: able to attain eternal life. So your relationship to God and your eternal destiny depends on your relationship to us and we'll tell you what to think and we'll tell you what to do and we'll tell you what sources to avoid. So it's an authoritarian kind of social dynamic, I guess.
1: Yeah. I just want to make something clear too. Mm -hmm. The iglesia members are not the weird type you meet down the street, like a bunch of mindless robots doing exactly what they're told by their leaders. It's just that when it comes to religious matters, they're taught to only believe whatever their ministers teach them because their ministers are the only ones commissioned by God to interpret the Bible.
0: Mm -hmm. That's another story we can get into. This is where the two aspects of this cult rhetoric kind of pull in different directions, because I think you could show a lot of examples of historically orthodox groups, which exercise this kind of extreme control over their members, where the leadership gets sometimes the power, sex, and money from them. And, you know, they just need to do as they're told, basically, and think what they're told. You could be Baptist and be in a group like that. Right. So, the two things come apart. You could be in a group with some non-standard Christian beliefs and it not be a cult, or you could be in a cult and it could be completely orthodox. That's a very good point,
1: because you can have the correct belief about everything in the Bible, you know, from the nature of God, uh, you know, you, you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the Bible is reliable or even inerrant, and you can even be a biblical Unitarian Or, you know, if you want to be a Trinitarian, you can be and still be a part of a cult, you know, where there is
0: brainwashing
1: and mind control.
0: Mm -hmm. Before we leave this subject of cults and Trinity and the Incarnation, I've come around to a different view. I think that if a group is kind of fundamentally Protestant and that it wants to be Bible-based, a group can establish its credibility by saying, Hey, did you know that the Trinity is not in the Bible? And this two natures thing isn't either. It's like a low hanging fruit, right? They can come along and say, hey, you know, they haven't told you the truth about this. And, you know, now we're your source of information about what the Bible really says. And then we're off to the races with all kinds of interesting things. So I find this pattern in the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're the non-Trinitarian. They're the big game in town in the U.S. The way international used to be like that uh the armstrong groups used to be like that o- other similar groups it, it was just it was kind of an easy win to show that the trinity is not in the bible and if you can do that and you're trying to show yourself to be the source of good bible information then uh, a lot of people are very impressed by this you know that's really interesting you said that uh Dell because of this the way
1: the Iglesia Cristo operated in the Philippines back in the days, and even nowadays, is that it's an easy sell toward an ordinary person, a Roman Catholic or a Protestant, that when he or she hears the Bible talking about Jesus is a human being mm-hmm. who is differentiated from the one true God, the Father, that is a very easy sell mm-hmm. to a Protestant or a Roman Catholic. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. How could Jesus be a man and God, you know, Almighty God, at the
0: same time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and particularly if you read the first three Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I mean, come on, like, who's going to think Jesus is God reading those books? Exactly. So, they throw the line out there, the fishing line, and
1: reel them in. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, they're actually already
0: being indoctrinated by other beliefs of the Iglesia. So tell us a little bit more about this Iglesia ni Cristo. I think a lot of Americans aren't familiar with it. You know, where does it come from? Uh, why does it have this cultish reputation? For you, you've mentioned that it has a cultish reputation for being controlling. Uh, tell us about your interactions with these folks. First of all, the
1: Iglesia ni Cristo started in the year nineteen fourteen. It was founded by a fellow named Felix Y Manalo. Mm -hmm. Mr. Manalo was a former evangelical, and then he became a Seventh-day Adventist. And then later on, he became uh, an agnostic, a free thinker. Mm -hmm. Now, I might be mixing
0: the chronology of the sequence, Mm -hmm. but... He had tried out some very different things. Yeah. How did he come to found the group then? What was his own view of his own role?
1: One day, he was really asking God to show him the truth. And he was so confused, and he kept asking God to show him, and somehow he decided to enclose himself in his bedroom for 10 days. And after 10 days, he came out fully convinced that God wanted him to restore the true church of Christ. The true church of Christ, the one found in the New Testament, disappeared on the face of the earth. Oh, when the disciples of Jesus and their disciples died naturally or were killed because of their faith, the church stopped existing. Hmm. Somehow, from Felix Ymanalo's understanding, God commissioned him to restore that true church, and he has a way of using scripture, taking things out of context, to prove that he is God's last messenger in these last days. And it is coincided with World War I, because
0: mm-hmm. World War I started in July
1: 1914, mm-hmm. officially.
0: Yeah, the worst war the world had ever seen by far at that time.
1: Yeah. So from that premise that only he was commissioned by God to preach the gospel, to teach Bible truths, And anybody that God commissioned through him is also appointed by God. So he was the first person to preach the gospel, the true gospel, after the disciples of Christ, the first century church died. Mm -hmm. After the, the church disappeared on the face of the earth, he was the first minister to preach the truth. And therefore, only he can interpret the Bible. He and his ministers. Wow. That is why the Iglesia members are taught that if you are not an Iglesia minister, you cannot interpret the Bible. Therefore, you cannot teach or even preach the gospel. Hmm. And for that reason, the Iglesia members will not listen to you, to anybody else, other than their ministers.
0: Huh. Now... A lot of Americans are going to think this sounds similar to the story of Joseph Smith. Did he exhibit sort of other Smith-type behaviors like lying and adultery and you know, just accumulating all power for himself? I mean, I guess you've already said basically he's accumulating all interpretive power for himself because it's only he and his appointed people who can guide you. If you were to
1: look into the history behind Felix Y. Manalo, there are a number of things said about him. Some things are bad, some things are good, and it seems to me that it boils down to whoever is telling the story. Mm -hmm. So, um, at least in my understanding, I'd like to think that the man is a sincere man of God. Mm -hmm. There are some things said about him, but I, I don't focus on that, and I I think the the man really meant well, and he really believed what he preached. And when it comes to like sexual misconducts or power over a lot of people, over his congregation or church or denomination, there may be some stuff going on there. But uh, it depends on who is talking, you know, because there are Iglesia members or former Iglesia members who now are speaking against their leaders, their current leaders, mm-hmm. you know, mismanagement of funds and other things happening. And some years ago, I just heard that two prominent members of the church were kicked out. They call it disfellowship. So these two prominent members were disfellowship from the iglesia because they were going against the leadership of their leader. And by the way, their leader is uh, Eduardo Manalo. Eduardo Manalo is the grandson of Felix Manalo. Mm-hmm. So what happened was Felix Manalo died and his son, Iranio Manalo, took over his being the leader of the church. And by the way, they, they call him executive minister. Mm-hmm. That's his title. Mm-hmm. So Iranio Manalo took over as the executive minister of the iglesia. And after that, he, he passed and, now, he, his son also subsequently took over as the executive minister.
0: Mm-hmm. It it's a kind of family dynasty situation.
1: Yeah. But they claim that uh, it was really the leadership, because they have a bunch of uh, ministers next to the their executive minister. I don't know how many there are, but they voted Hiranya Manalo to take over Felix Manalo. And then they also voted eduardo Mm
0: -hmm. manalo to take over iranio manalo's position Mm -hmm. so as far as the classic uh, cult leader triad of power sex and money uh you're saying as far as you know sex and money aren't necessarily main things going on maybe some power but as far as you're concerned uh you think he's probably sincere the founder
1: yeah, I really believe that the founder of the iglesia, Felix Manalo, was a sincere man. Mm-hmm. And from what I've heard, his son, Iranio Manalo, was a good man, too. He, he had a very charismatic and good personality. The same thing with his son, Eddie Boy Manalo or Eduardo Manalo. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they call him Eddie Boy for short. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, to learn about the iglesia is this. They have a very powerful political influence in the Philippines. Every time there is an election, whether it's for president or governor or mayor, their members are specifically told to vote whoever the leader wants.
0: So, for example, uh, the current president, Duterte, he's quite the controversial character. That's a whole conversation in itself. But continue. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, the idea of voting for the same person, the idea behind that is unity. You have to be united. Mm. Even if you disagree with the, the church wishes, you have to do what they tell you to do. Or else you're not being united.
0: You're deviating from God's will. So they're a reliable voting block. It's a certain yes. percentage of the Philippine population. It's what? What percentage is it? Is it? It's more than one percent, isn't it? The Iglesia is, I'd say, about one point five
1: or two percent of the population in the Philippines.
0: But it's a reliable voting block. If you can get them on your side, that could be the difference in a close election. I guess. Oh yeah, yeah, they can tip the scale. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I ask Mr. Schellenberger about his own interactions with the Iglesia Ni Cristo. So tell us about your interactions with this group. Was this an option that you considered? The Iglesia de Cristo was attractive for many Filipinos because
1: of the way they hold their church services. The men and women are seated separately. And when you come in, you have to be quiet. And when you're seated, there has to be two people in between. So, that you know, two people space in between. And you're not allowed to talk to anybody during the church service. You are not allowed to read your Bible to check if the minister is right about the verses that he's using. But that only applies to iglesia members. If you're not a member, it's okay. You can look at your Bible and read and check for yourself. But if you're a uh, church member, you're not allowed to.
0: Do they have a visitor section in the seating or something?
1: No, no. The, the, you're mixed with the rest of the ordinary members. Okay. But you are encouraged to read your Bible when you get home in your own time. But during the church service, you're not allowed to because the idea is so you can focus on God's message. You're not distracted. And I, I understand that. And I, and I to a point, I can agree with that one. Because we have so many in our churches where people are so distracted with things, even reading the Bible while the
0: the preacher is talking and, you know. Did that level of control put you off or did you just find that to be kind of orderly and appealing? Yeah, that type of control put me off. To me, that was too
1: much. Mm -hmm. To me, that did not allow freedom to say amen, or to take your time to read the Bible right then and there in front of the preacher, to even clap or even raise your hand and, you know, express thankfulness to God. Now, I'm not for
0: this orderly church service, of course, but I'm for orderly service. So... Do they feature much music in their services? They do have
1: music mostly sung by uh, the church choir, I don't remember seeing anybody singing solo or duet, anything like that, Mm -hmm. during the church service. The church service, when it comes to singing, is nothing but the choir singing and then the church members singing with the choir.
0: Mm -hmm. They do have singing, like a solo duet, outside the church service. So back to theology, I mean, did you, when you had conversations with him about things like the Trinity did you think they made a lot of good points or did you think they were just giving you kind of stock answers or back then I didn't really care
1: much about the Iglesia's being a biblical unitarian aside from the fact that for me the group is a cult in their defense of the human messiah I found their way of explaining certain key biblical passages to be shallow for example in John 20:28 20, when Thomas said to Jesus my lord and my god Thomas had merely made a mistake in saying those words to Jesus. <laughs> Thomas had uh-huh. gotten startled and said those words after realizing that Jesus was raised to life. Uh huh. Wow. Now, I'm not sure if the Iglesia still holds that explanation. Mm-hmm. Another thing, too, that I have a problem with is that when they interpret key biblical passages, especially the ones that are complicated, they would heavily rely on different Bible translations and Trinitarian scholarly work. The problem with that is, number one, how could you say that only your ministers can interpret the Bible when you're relying on different Bible translations and (laughs) different Bible Trinitarian scholars? And the other thing is, now they're in a bind. What if the, the Bible translations or the scholars make a mistake in certain areas, and then later on they change their minds on those, they correct themselves? So now what? How could you say that only your ministers can interpret the Bible? Are you ready to change your interpretation? You may still hold to the biblical Unitarian view, but
0: your interpretation of certain key passages are not correct. So as far as being the best interpreters of the Bible, as far as your study, you and your studies were concerned, they weren't kind of living up to their claims. You found that they were making yes. some good points, but then some other points, uh, not they didn't seem to be providing convincing interpretations. Yes. Now, to be sure, in all honesty,
1: when I was debating the ministers and their members alike, they were making good points by simply reading John 17.3, the Father being the only true God, Mm -hmm. and 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Back then, they didn't even have to explain it. And to me, it was making sense already Mm -hmm. that perhaps Jesus was merely a human Messiah. But... I still managed to dismiss the idea that Jesus was a human Messiah because of all these other things that I already believe about Jesus. So I didn't even entertain the possibility that Jesus might be a mere man. And by the way, when I say mere man, I don't mean like an ordinary human being who is sinful and all that. When I say mere man, I use the word mere in contrast to God Almighty. So in contrast to God, he's a mere man, but he's a man who is born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, who was put to death via Roman cross, who was raised to life by God the Father, who is now seated at the right hand of God and is coming back on earth to establish God's kingdom.
0: That's what I believe. Mm -hmm. So that's what kind of view you hold to now, but we still haven't quite got through the whole story of how you came to that. I mean, I assumed when you were reading apologetics, you would just accept an argument like the Father's God, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit's God, those three are different, and there's only one God. And so, Trinity, is that right? And why isn't that just a proof of the Trinity? I mean, isn't what what could be a problem with that? When I started defending the Trinity, I
1: used different approaches. Initially, I would just use You know, Bible verses such as 1 John 5-7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. It's a King James-only Bible church. So initially, when I started defending the Trinity, I started with using 1 John 5-7 that talks about the Trinity, it seemed to me. And then later on, I learned that that's a spurious passage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I focused more on the "quote unquote" more obvious Bible passages, such as John ten thirty, John one one, Hebrews one eight, mm-hmm. Philippians two six to eight. But as I look more into it, as I try to be honest with what the Bible really tells us. In a very long and gradual process, there are key passages that had lost their effect on me, as I honestly looked at the biblical passage. One or two at a time, those passages no longer fit the Trinitarian theory. Mm -hmm. Or, to put it the other way, the Trinitarian theory no longer fits the passages.
0: When the Trinity's podcast returns, we discuss how he came to a tipping point where he just couldn't be a Trinitarian Christian anymore. And he also points out a serious pitfall for Christians. So at this point, your interactions with various people have caused you to revisit these issues. And when you seriously look at the passages, you find that there are first century contextual interpretations that don't support the Trinity. And I'm guessing you're finding this out a lot of times, even from Trinitarian scholars. So what happens next? A lot of people would just say, okay, well, I can't use those three texts anymore, but... I still got plenty so how do you end up changing to a biblical unitarian view so in a very gradual and long process there are
1: key bible passages that used to appeal to me i used to find them to be decisive in support of the deity of jesus until i honestly looked at those passages And one or two at a time, those passages no longer fit the Trinitarian theory. Or, to put it the other way, the Trinity theory no longer fits the passages. Some years before I converted to BU, I ran across Sir Anthony Buzzard's work online and on YouTube. I found Buzzard's arguments to be convincing, but there were some areas I thought, Were weak in his explanation of key Bible passages. And then I ran across your work, Dale. It was your work that made me seriously, honestly, and prayerfully question my faith in the Trinity and consider the BU view of God. Specifically, your simple application of logic and reasoning combined with viable explanations and exegesis of key Bible passages as well as an objective look at relevant areas in church history. And then a few years afterwards, I no longer can hold on to my belief in the Trinity Mm -hmm. and had all the reasons to embrace biblical Unitarianism. And that was in the latter part of 2016. Uh And by the way, if I may say this, if you were to do a search on Facebook, just type my name, Aaron Schellenberger, Mm -hmm. and then you go back to this particular apologetics facebook group there was an exchange between you and me oh yeah about the about john 17:3 uh-huh and uh yeah it'll it'll blow your mind
0: <laughs> in the way i argued for the trinitarian position okay so one thing about sir anthony buzzard's work is as opposed to maybe things that you would have heard before is The man has a gigantic theological library and library of biblical scholarship, but he's not a a theologian by his uh, vocation, but he avails himself of quite a lot of recent scholarship. And I think it does give a real edge to his work that on a lot of topics, it's, it's very convincing and very helpful. As soon as I looked at your work, and really
1: question my faith and consider the biblical unitarian view i then looked anthony buzzard's work again at that time i was ready and ripe to just accept you know most of his arguments i was ready and that's
0: when i became a biblical unitarian now when people encounter my work a lot of theologians and some people who are into apologetics, they see my habit of giving formal arguments and they just are really put off by that. They see me reasoning carefully about, you know, a particular interpretation of two natures theory or something like that, or some way of parsing the Trinity, and they they say, Oh, what is this this logic chopping insanity? You know, what is this rationalism? But you must have been reading some apologists who know philosophy or something if if you appreciated that type of work, what, what sort of apologist had you been reading?
1: Like I've said, I became a biblical Unitarian in 2016, but if you were to rewind the tape some 10 years prior, I actually pursued a master's degree in Christian apologetics from a seminary. It's a, it's a pre- prestigious seminary, home-based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Southern Evangelical Seminary.
0: Did you like that? What kind of stuff you know were you into? What were you impressed by?
1: My concentration in my pursuit of a master's degree in Christian apologetics was on the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. My thesis was about an attempt to refute Bart Ehrman's claim that historians cannot establish the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. Mm-hmm. I believe I was successful in refuting Ehrman. Now... The purpose of the master's degree in apologetics is, among others, to equip and train the students so as to develop the skill in defending the essentials of the historic Christian faith. And this is by way of learning and applying basic logic and reasoning, Mm -hmm. proper historical research, and uh, sound biblical exegesis. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot about the basics of all that. And these are the essentials of the Christian faith as I was taught at the seminary. They are essentials because they are the foundation of Christianity. Without them, the whole edifice of Christian faith collapses. And I will only mention four basic ones. First, the existence of God. Next, the reliability of the Bible. Third, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And fourth, the Trinity. Those are the four essential historic foundation for the Christian faith. And in my training, I became more convinced than ever that God exists, that the Bible is reliable, and that the bodily resurrection of Jesus really happened. However, when it came to the Trinity, things went south for me. Hmm. As we all know, there are certain key Bible passages used to support the Trinity in general, And in particular,
0: the deity of both Jesus and the Holy Spirit. A lot of people, I mean, basically, apologetics training will give them enough defensive maneuvers to remain Trinitarian against the onslaught of groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Iglesia Ni Cristo. But you found that it wasn't solidifying your Trinitarian convictions. Yeah, Why was that? For me... It's a dishonest way
1: to defend what you believe to be the truth. As Sean Finnegan loves to say, truth has nothing to fear. I'm all about truth. I'm all about being honest with what the Bible really says. And when I began having doubts, when I began to abandon my interpretation of certain passages in support of the Trinity, I began to seriously ask God to show me. You know, when you seriously ask God, that's when I think your theology gets in trouble. You are at the mercy of God showing you. Why is this? Show me the truth. And at the same time, I was still fearful that I could be wrong, or I might make a mistake of you know, rejecting the deity of Jesus, but at the same time, I also had to trust God. I had to really be trusting God's grace through this journey. So there is honesty and there is trust in God that he would show you the way, the truth, and he showed me the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus, the human Messiah. Once I actually let God to show me, Dale, I'm telling you, it was so liberating. I felt as though I was released from a long imprisonment of the Trinitarian clutches. It was so liberating.
0: It didn't destroy your faith and your spiritual life?
1: Not at all. Believe it or not, my faith in God even was strengthened in that I now have a better understanding of who God is. And who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. I now have a better view of the reality about God and about Jesus and about salvation. And wow, it it is so liberating. Hmm. Now I don't have to worry about trying to defend the deity of Jesus and the three persons in one God doctrine and all of those nagging scripture verses that say Jesus is clearly a human being not Mm God-man, or not God-almighty, now I don't have to worry about any of that. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, it doesn't mean I'm right,
0: but there is a practical side to this. Well, you can focus on the things the New Testament focuses on. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now I can actually go
1: out there and defend the truth. I know God exists. I know the Bible is reliable. I know that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. What about the nature of God? What about the question of Jesus? Who do you say I am? asked Jesus. What about that? Mm-hmm. That now is forever answered for me. And I'm ready wherever God wants me to go <laughs> to actually advance the biblical Unitarian view of God. Now, I want to say this, though. We have to remind ourselves that being a biblical Unitarian is not the answer, per se. It's a step. It is this a, a huge step to knowing the truth and being free by the truth. Keep in mind that Satan, the devil, is a biblical Unitarian. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. He
1: believes that there is one God, and he even trembles. But that's not enough. Yeah, You got to place your faith in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the proper way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, just getting your theology straightened out doesn't necessarily mean that you're uh, in a good spiritual place. That's absolutely right. Yeah. One thing that I would like
1: to remind uh, people in general, and biblical Unitarians in particular, is not to think highly of yourself. Just because you have a correct view of God and His Son, Jesus, does not make you a better Christian.
0: Yeah, yeah, not overall, not necessarily. We we have know. to remind ourselves that, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's a big trap. I think people are very proud of their insight, just like they used to be proud of their what they thought was their deep Trinitarian gnosis. Now they're super proud that they don't hold that anymore, and they're holding to a biblical yeah. theology and Christology. Now they're super proud of that. I mean, that's, that's not where you want to be. I think God would rather have a humble Trinitarian. Next week, more of my conversation with Aaron Schellenberger. This week's thinking music has been the track "Smoky Eyes by Stefan Kartenberg. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where you can listen to or download that entire track.